Throughout this series, we've heard stories of hardship and suffering, but there has been this recurring thread of God doing something amazing, something beautiful, something restorative, something abundantly more in the midst or even through the suffering and the hardships. In fact, the way that it has often been presented, somebody could hear it and think, are you saying then that I should pursue hardship and suffering? Put another way, if we are hearing all these people saying that the hardest moment in their life produced some of the most amazing things that they know, how should we understand suffering and hardship? It seems to be clear that we shouldn't avoid it at all costs, but does that mean we should pursue it? When it hits us, how do we position ourselves to be able to be open to what God might do? These are hard questions, and our guest Andy makes it clear during the episode that no, we shouldn't pursue hardships and suffering. But yes, we should be open to what God can do in the midst. Now this is a very special episode, because Andy is actually the reason that this series exists. Andy didn't know it until we started our conversation, but it was his story that God used to plant a seed in my mind to explore the concept of healing. What I thought would be a singular conversation with Andy has led to nearly 50 conversations, exploring healing in a way that I didn't see coming. You're listening to episode 109 of the Where Did You See God podcast. Father God, I just want to thank you that you are God and you are good. And I just thank you for this opportunity for Andy and I to talk for the first time to have a conversation in a while. And I thank you for the way that you brought this together. And I'm really excited about what you'll do through it. But I want to release all this to you, our words, our thoughts, anything that we may have in mind for this time. We just want to give it all to you because we know that you could do far more with it than we ever could. So we thank you for the privilege of being able to connect and talk about you. And we thank you in advance for how you're going to work through this. All this we pray in your most holy and precious name. Amen. So Andy, I'm excited to talk to you and I'm going to share why in a moment. But before we jump in, one thing I do with all my guests is I want to create a way for them to share in a brief but fun way who they are. And the way that I do that is I give them a very random prompt. Now, your prompt isn't one that I just came up with just now. It actually came up a week ago when I was making coffee. and I was like, well, this is what I have to do. Because what you and I know that anyone who listens to this doesn't know is that you and I were in a competition together, a competition <laughs> called Mr. Campbell. We went to Campbell University. There is video footage that exists, but you can't find it, people. So don't try. You know, it's one of those classic college competitions where the guys come out and there's a dance and costumes and talents and things like that. We won't get into any more details beyond that. But here is your prompt. <laughs> Let's imagine that they called us all back. They're like, we want to do a Mr. Campbell reunion competition. And we're at that part where everyone's standing on the stage and you have to go up to the mic and you only have a moment, but you have to introduce who you are to the audience to get them hyped for you. So you're going up to the mic. Let's hear what Andy says at the Mr. Campbell reunion competition. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a great question. Uh, I would say today, today being my Friday, you know, Minister's Friday is on a Thursday. 
I'm just a guy ready for the weekend. <laughs> it's, 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 been, it's been one of those weeks, you know. Yeah. You know, I'm glad that that video footage surfaced recently for anybody who's friends with us on social media because for my wife, you know, we've been married for 14, almost 15 years coming up. She didn't believe that I danced or <laughs> I can dance. Right. And she watched the video and I proceeded to watch her watch it again and again and again and again. And finally, she's like, well, why don't you ever dance that way with me? You know, that's, uh-huh. that's a really good question. Yeah. <laughs> Just a guy ready for the weekend after a long week of work and ministry. But sometimes after a long week in ministry, that is the only answer you can give. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I mentioned that I'm excited about this episode. And here's why. Back on August 12th, you posted on Facebook. You had a picture of you smirking, and the reason that you were smirking is because you got some really good news from the doctor. And prior to that, you'd been sharing this journey you had been on with your eye and the possibility that you might actually not just lose your eyesight, but maybe even lose your eye. Mm. I remember seeing your post, and occasionally this will happen where I'll just feel this random nudge that I should reach out to that person and invite them to share their story on the podcast. And so I was like, oh, great. I haven't talked to Andy in a while outside of Facebook. So let me reach out. And you're like, yeah, man, I'd, I'd be open to that. And then life happened. And here we are six months later. But this is the reason that I'm excited about that is because when I reached out to you, I was planning that to be a one-off episode on healing. What I ended up messaging you is saying, praying for healing has been a topic I've wanted to tap into more, namely from the standpoint of navigating the tension of stories where it seems to work and those where it seems that it doesn't. And here's why this is really funny, is that was going to be a one-off episode. But then that led to an episode with another friend who was like, oh, you're doing an episode on healing? I have a story for healing. I was like, ah, I just wanted to do one healing episode, not two. (laughs) I've learned with steps of obedience, if God invites you to something and you step in, you start to find out that he actually had way more in store than you would have expected or known or could have even gotten to yourself because that turned into an episode, which turned into another episode, which turned into, as of this recording, I think this is the 47th conversation just in this healing series since September. Little did you know that your I story would lead to what will probably be at least a 50 episode season on healing. (laughs) That has been a wild ride. So I'm excited because I think there's something special about this conversation coming towards the tail end of the season. And so I'm glad you're here. And really, I just want to jump right into your story and then we'll see where that takes this conversation. Tell me the story about when you nearly lost your eye, Andy. Yeah. And the fear was actually that it could possibly be both eyes. Mm. I've been wearing contacts since high school, mainly because of athletics. I tried glasses one time with a football helmet on and that did not work. And it (laughs) certainly didn't work in wrestling. And actually, it didn't work in theater production, which I was in. So, you know, occasionally you get the irritation in your eye, you take your contacts out, you just kind of deal with it for a day wearing your glasses. And I developed this pain in my eye and it was just almost unbearable. So I went to the eye doctor which I'm one of these people that I'm always like pushing off going to the doctor as late as possible for anything. Eye doctor was like, yeah, you've got something called a corneal ulcer and uh, we're going to prescribe you some antibiotics. You know, just take those over the next couple of days. We'll see you in a week and see how things go. In less than 12 hours, that pain went from unbearable to I don't even know what to describe unbearable. Uh, And essentially it's because my eye was swelling. And essentially what a corneal ulcer is, is you get some sort of abrasion on your eye and the bacteria that's normally in your eye that's flushed out by just your tears and blinking got locked into place because my contact was sitting on top of it. 
the pain was because my eye was swelling, but also because the infection was spreading. It was over my cornea and I got sent to three different specialists in a day and finally sat down with a corneal specialist who said, look, here's the deal. There is a really good chance that you're going to lose your eye. And said, the second option is you're going to lose your vision that eye. And the third option is I'm really not comfortable telling you because I don't think that's even an option. So he proceeded to prescribe me with, I mean, I had two different strong antibiotics and he was like, we're putting the harshest chemicals in your eyes trying to kill this infection. And I had to take those on the hour, 10 minutes apart. So for essentially three or four days in a row, every hour I had an alarm going off, Mm. including through the night. My wife helped me just waking up, putting these drops in my eye along the way. I just lost vision in the eye and the sense of I couldn't see through it. It was like looking through a very, very, very foggy window. That's when reality hits of the uncomfortable nature of my whole life, you know, living with your eyesight. You know, I'm still very active. I'm a long distance runner. I love playing golf. I love hiking and all kinds of things. And, you know, that just hit me in that moment. And I was so worried because I was actually supposed to be going to a really cool leadership invite only conference in New York City. Mm. Brian McLaren, I'm sure you've read, is one of my favorite authors. And he and I have become good friends through the CBF podcast. And he invited me to this kind of summit of 15, 20 people. And this was supposed to be leaving on a Thursday. And this I stuff was happening on a Tuesday. And so I remember saying to the corneal specialist, well, you know, just give me the drops and I'll see you at some time next week. He goes like, no, I'm going to see you every day for the next couple of weeks, because wow. if we don't take care of this, you know, this is what's going to happen. Man, that had to be heavy. One, there's the fear of losing your eyesight or possibly your eyes. <laughs> but two, there's also the physical toll that that takes. One, the pain. Two, you're up every night. So you're having to figure out how to function as a person in the midst of all this. But you also have this faith-based podcast that you're a part of, pastoring, just being a Christian in your everyday life. How did you navigate the depth and the pain and the unknowns and the hurt of that season, not knowing if anything would even work out on a physical level? Yeah, you know, I think to go into that, I have to go back to some other incidents that have happened in my adult life and in marriage. Theologically trained minister, undergrad, graduate, been in vocational ministry for really over 25 years because I started when I was 14 years old. Mm -hmm. But I'll never forget, you know, you prepare to care for people in their time of crisis and then crisis hits you. And that hit us early on in our marriage. We had our first child. And then lost another child 12 weeks into pregnancy Mm -hmm. and the devastation and the trauma of that experience and how that happened. That was really one of the first times in my life that I had experienced, you know, that fear and the uncertainty, that gut wrenching spirit pulling experience, you know, that you have in life. I had lost people I loved and cherished, but that experience was very traumatic. And so it's kind of the same thing, but this is different. You know, it's not just thinking about the things I won't be able to do, but thinking about the way that life changes if you lose one eye, certainly both eyes, as he was worried about the infection spreading from one eye to the other, had no idea at all as they're trying to run tests and do things like that. 
you think there's things that prepare you for it. You think because you know these scriptures, because you believe theologically in these right things. But when those things happen, it's an awakening experience. But I will say that, you know, I believe in the presence of God and specifically the presence of God in the people that we're surrounded with and our family and our friends and our colleagues and our mentors and especially in the church, which is, I think, why the church is so important for our spiritual journey. I think it's an essential part of our spiritual journey. But having in that moment people, especially people here, at University Baptist Church, the people that I am vocationally pastoring care for me in that moment. Mm. Those are the kinds of things that take that stirred fear and anxiety within your soul and begin to help settle it down. You know, not that everything's going to be okay, but that you've got a network of people around you. God is present in your life because God is showing up in these people and these conversations and these words of encouragement and these meals that people are bringing over. God's certainly showing up in a very patient wife mm-hmm. <laughs> who's a very good caregiver, you know. I don't want to paint an image as if it was like, hey, everything's going to be okay, because that's not the case, mm-hmm. you know, living in fear in that time. And I just can't even imagine for those that are dealing with terminal diagnosis yeah, or any kind of illness or, you know, that long, painful process that I know people have gone through where something's going on with their body. There's all these symptoms, but it's that waiting of getting the appointments and going to that specialist and doing that thing, that ubiquitous cloud that hangs over you as you're waiting mm-hmm. to try to figure out what's going wrong with your body. What I experience pales in comparison to what many of those people experience. Yeah. When experiences like that, experiences like yours, really press against our understanding of self-sufficiency. We have this default belief that we are enough, that we can do whatever we need to do, that sometimes in the worst moments, the unhealthiest moments, that we don't need others. And moments like this reveal the truth that, no, actually, there is a limit to our self-sufficiency. And there also is a cost to our self-sufficiency. And when we embrace the reality that we were designed to be in community, (laughs) that we were designed to not just be an island in of ourselves, we can actually find healing or fullness or joy or hope that we couldn't have found on our own. And so I really appreciate you sharing that reality that even you being theologically trained, pastoring others, providing pastoral care for others are still a person who in those hard moments was like, this is scary. Like, I don't know. You have studied a lot about prayer and healing and similar topics, I'm sure. And before this happened, you had your ideas of what the purpose of prayer was and what prayer could accomplish and what healing was. In the midst of it, you probably had lots of questions. And then on the back end of it, one of the things in your post when you were smirking in the picture is you thanked all the people who had been praying. And so tell me about that journey for you, the journey of understanding of what prayer is, what healing is from that start to the middle to where you are today. One small note on what you were saying earlier on self-sufficiency is being in your later 30s will teach you you're not self-sufficient anymore (laughs) as you're dealing with all sorts of ailments. You know, the last couple of years is like, you know, tendonitis in the shoulder, you know, sports hernia that won't go away, Uh all these different things (laughs) that it's kind of, you know, process of getting older. Coincidentally, when all this is going down, I was in the middle of teaching a 10-week sermon series on prayer. Mm. <laughs> the title of the series was Audacious, uh-huh. you know, powerful prayers that will change everything. 
And I was looking at all the unique ways and opportunities by which we're able to interchange with the Spirit of God, whether it's prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of intercession, prayers of confession, prayers for formation. You know, it was 10 different weeks on this, and then all this is going down. Hmm. It's always tricky and always touchy to talk about prayers for healing, because then you think about the people who earnestly pray for healing and it doesn't happen, Mm -hmm. or people who are more devout and pious than I can even imagine, and yet they're never healed of their ailment. That, of course, draws up questions of, is God listening? Does God answer prayers? Why would God choose this over another? And there's also sorts of circumstances that we can think about in our life. You know, I think down to the root of prayer, beyond the spiritual, I'll say, Beyond the theological, I think there's something physiological that goes on when we pray, when we're earnestly seeking something, and also when others are invited into the process. I think there's a sense of synergy. I think there's a sense of courage that infuses our psychological well-being that motivates us and helps our bodies. You know, there's all sorts of scientific studies, and we can get to the theological moment, but there's all sorts of scientific studies around positivity and how positivity affects our body's outcome, but also, more importantly, negativity and pessimism and how that ultimately affects our physiological well-being, whether it be gut health or heart health or sleeping health or all sorts of things. And so I think there's something remarkable. And I think God created all of those things. Mm -hmm. I think God created our bodies with the capacity to respond accordingly to working out of a sense of abundance versus out of a sense of scarcity. And when we invite others into the process, I think because we are spiritual beings, we are spiritually connected with other people in a journey. I think the mystery of all that and how God works and all that infuses itself in helping people at times to overcome the obstacles they are facing. Mm-hmm. So that's one aspect of it that not a lot of people talk about, especially from a, a theological or ministerial standpoint of things. Yeah. And it taps into a question that I was even going to ask. If we come into this originally thinking, oh, I should pray because then it could lead to healing. But then we find out, oh, there are people that are more devout believers than I who have prayed and not been healed. It could lead someone to say, well, why even pray at all? If it's not going to do the thing that I think it's going to do, why even pray? And so you started to tap into this. There are ways that we were actually built and designed that that act of prayer actually triggers. You know, someone could word it, the power of positivity, right? And the act of prayer actually triggers this act of taking thoughts captive. And instead of thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to die, it's holding on to hope, holding on to peace, holding on to joy, connecting with others. So somebody who's not a believer could hear all this, think about this and say, well, how do you know that prayer did anything? How do you know that this wasn't just positivity? Because I don't even think that God exists So I could engage in these same kind of things and have the same results, right? So how do you know? And so my question for you is this, like, why do you believe that God was involved in this process? Mm. That's a really fascinating question. And I think it would be perfectly understandable for anyone to jump to that conclusion. And I ultimately think that we're created by God that's big enough to take our doubts and our fears and our wonders and manage those. I'm a firm believer that as I think about our faith and what I believe this whole Jesus thing is about, it's about a way of life. 
more than a religiosity. It's about following Jesus into something that we couldn't discover unto ourselves and we wouldn't be empowered to do unto ourselves. It's funny as being raised Baptist, being theologically trained Baptist, Baptists really aren't necessarily attuned to the Holy Spirit. You know, we talk about it, but it's like it's the third wheel of the Trinity almost. (laughs) You know, and I think as we think about what the Spirit of God does, as Jesus talks about in the gospel, specifically the gospel of John, talks about empowering us and reminding us of everything that Jesus taught us. You know, hope is possible outside of Christ. Let's just be honest. People can be hopeful outside of the Christian faith. But instilling hope within our soul and the type of hope that has an elasticity to it, an eschatological framing around it, isn't possible without Christ, you know? And so it's not just about hope, but it's also about courage. It's also about fortitude. Those are things that we know about as human beings, but what they fully mean down to our DNA as God-created beings isn't possible outside of Christ. And certainly, we all can have healthy communities, and we all can have family, and even people of the Christian faith can have a negative church experience. I mean, heaven forbid, have you ever heard of such a thing? So I think people can find community outside of faith. However, as the church is designed, that community of believers, that cloud of witnesses, that great companionship and sojourners in the process, I think there's something transcendently miraculous about being in faith with other people and what that means in our times of trouble. One of my favorite passages, especially a common passage I like to read at a funeral service, comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul talks about that we have received the comfort that Paul had received from Christ. You know, So he's like, I'm comforting you because I've received this comfort from Christ. And it develops in you this fortitude, this perseverance for you to face such times. And so that same comfort, that same compassion, that's something that comes from Christ. And I don't think that's something that we can discover unto ourselves outside of a spiritual journey. Yeah, yeah. So I'm looking at you now, but more importantly, you're looking at me. You have two (laughs) eyes and you have eyesight. So something worked. Yeah. You know, the other aspect of this, as I get into the physiological side, is there's also the medical side of it. Mm -hmm. The miracle of modern medicine, the fact that people are instilled with wisdom and insight and scientific learning to be able to say, hey, you know what? This right combination of chemicals is going to destroy (laughs) this bacteria that's trying to destroy your eye, you know? And it's so funny because in seeing the corneal specialist, he looked at me and he's like, not knowing, because when you tell people you're a pastor, Mm -hmm. let alone a Baptist minister, that sets conversations. Typically, I've discovered in two different directions. Number one is they've got a lot of questions Mm -hmm. and a lot of questions based on agitation and horrible experience. Mm -hmm. Or it goes the other route, which is they think they need to begin to confess to you everything they've ever done wrong. And so they don't view you as a human being or approachable person. So Mm -hmm. I actually never really talked to my corneal specialist for a while about what I did for a living. So he started using the language of miracle before I did, because he's like, man, this is a miracle. He's like, when I saw you, I thought for sure you're going to lose your eye. I thought for sure you were going to completely lose your eyesight. And I just can't believe what's happening. He's like, I've never seen a severe case as what you had and how it was able to respond. Mm -hmm. Now, this guy is amazing, not to be grotesque or anything, but when I went and saw him for the first time, they had to numb my eye and then 
yeah, if you've ever seen Clockwork Orange, there's that scene in which mm. uh, you know a character has their eyes <laughs> pried open and they can't do anything about it. Oh, that was the experience I was having because they numb my eye because then then they were then taking the finest of razors and scraping off the layers to get to oh this bacteria. And I'm watching all this go down <laughs> oh and can't move God. and can't can't feel it, but can feel the pressure of it. Uh. And then they're loading my eye up with all of these chemicals, you know, and so. You know, to a certain extent, and not to draw us to another topic, but it's fascinating for me to see people of faith, especially in this time of thinking things like the vaccine against the coronavirus is a hoax and, you know, some sort of weird thing that God can work through all these things, you know, and there are Christian traditions that don't believe in the scientific method and scientific advancement, especially medical advancements. So they're just kind of like, you got cancer, you got cancer. God gave that to you, you know, and I don't think that's how God works. I mm -hmm. think God, even the medical community, whether a person of faith or not, can give them the wisdom and knowledge and understanding to take care of the things that we have going on with our bodies. And, but I think that's one element of healing. It's a critical part. It's an essential part, but it's one part of healing for sure. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You said that you avoided sharing your profession. The doctor was the one who brought up Miracle first. And as you were talking about that, made me realize that we can have a lot of reactions to calling something a miracle. Like if we really, really believe that something is a miracle, we might not have much hesitation. But if we're not 100% sure, we might be hesitant to call something a miracle. Your doctor called it a miracle. How have you processed the reality that you were highly likely to be blind or possibly lose your eyes, but now here you are looking at me? How do you understand the idea of miracle in terms of your story? Yes. So my temperament is interesting in the sense of I am an eternal optimist that things are going to work out as they should mm -hmm. in the sense of keeping the right mind, following the guidance of what you should. Things are going to work out. We're going to figure a way through this, if you will. Not in the sense of God's just going to do it and we're just going to have to show up and it's going to happen. That's not what I mean. I mean, following that path and seeing a way through challenging situations. I'm also an eternal critic in the mm. sense of I'm always, you know, and I'm usually a critic worse than myself of always trying to find ways to do things better, to improve in certain areas. It's fascinating to talk about this, the fear of losing your eye and at the same sense, the belief that things are going to work out. Now, things are going to work out. It could mean I lose my eye. Mm -hmm. It is what it is. Deal with it. I could lose my eyesight. Truth be told, I mean, my eye is not back to normal. It's never going to go back to normal. I'm always going to have a little bit of this haze in this eye when I look at things. And certainly my vision changed in the eye. I have a different prescription now in this eye versus this eye. And so you talk about a miracle in a sense of, yeah, I think these things are possible. You know, these things are reality. We're finding our way through this. It's weird sometimes because it doesn't happen in the way that you think it's going to happen, mm -hmm. right? I go back to one of the most fascinating stories comes from the Gospel of John. We know the Lazarus story. We know the great story that, hey, Jesus resurrected this guy from the dead that had been in the tomb for several days. And they were worried about opening up because he'd been dead long enough for them to worry about his body smelling, right? Mm -hmm. But if you back up to the beginning of that story, first of all, we learn that Jesus' good friend is Lazarus. He really loves him. Mm -hmm. He really loves his two sisters. But he receives word and he's like, yeah, we're good. We're not going to go there right now. And in the interim period, in the interim days, Lazarus dies. And then Jesus finally shows up and he has this interaction with the sisters in which they even say like, hey, why didn't you come? You could have prevented all of this. 
And Jesus is overwhelmed by grief of their grief and grief of the loss of his friend. We read that fascinating, one of the shortest verses in scripture, which is Jesus wept. And then he turns around and resurrects this guy from the dead. One of the greatest miracles we see within scripture. Jesus had resurrected other people from the dead. But why in the timing and the mechanics of all this did it happen this way? And I think when it comes down to it, our mode of believing and thinking miracles should happen aren't always how they should happen and aren't always in the method and outcomes that we want. But it doesn't make it any less a miracle. Yeah. You know what I love about what you shared, particularly about your approach to life, that, you know, you're an eternal optimist, but also you're a critic. And so you're walking this tension of hoping for things, but also being trusting that God's going to do what he needs to do. And, and you're right, there is this spectrum. There are people that will say, no, if you have enough faith, any ailment you have, God can heal it. And so if he's not healing it, it's probably because you're not believing hard enough. And there are others that will say, if God gave you cancer, he gave you cancer. And, and that's what it is. And so, so many people are living in the midst of this spectrum. And here you are in a place of being both optimistic, but also critical, being both hopeful, but also aware that things could happen that you wouldn't have chosen. And you were ready on a broad level for the scenario in which God didn't restore your eyesight. Did you ever have a moment where you sat with God and named it? And what I'm thinking of specifically is Jesus knew for a long time what he was walking towards. He wrestled with some of the pain of that. Maybe that was part of the reason he sometimes escaped away to pray on a mountain because he was thinking about what was coming in a couple months or in a year. Or, But he had a very specific moment when he got to Gethsemane and he broke down and prayed and said, if there's any way to take this cup and do it another way, let's do it. But not my will, but yours be done. Did you ever have a moment like that where broadly you understood you're going to trust God, whatever he does, but you said, all right, God, if this is the way you're going to go... I'm still with you. Yeah, not in the sense of coming to like a place of understanding that I would be okay with this. You know, I had my moment of like, please, yeah. <laughs> like, please. <laughs> I could think of all the thousands of reasons of why and they weren't necessarily selfish, mm -hmm, you know. Mm -hmm. But I think my understanding of God and my journey with God isn't transactional. Mm -hmm. You know, it's never been transactional. You know, I've never theologically been in a place where it's like, God, if you do this, I'll do this. Or God, this didn't happen the way I wanted to. So you must not care. Or I don't have a transactional theological understanding of anything. And I think that really zeroes into how I think God moves and functions in the world. For most of us that grew up probably evangelical, we were taught that God is like the great chess master, the Bobby Fisher of, <laughs> of heaven, if you will. You know, that God's just moving the pieces around and just waiting for us to do something, mm -hmm. just to move that piece there. And you can read scripture and you can come to that assumption. Or you can see God is in the process of working with us as life is happening around us and working in and through us more of a kind of a process theological approach than a transactional or one that's foreknown and unwilling to move on. And I think you can look within the scriptures and see examples of changing God's mind. How often do we see like God's going to destroy these people or this thing and then God's convinced by somebody that God shouldn't do that, you know, like those kinds of moments. Now, that's another conversation for another time. <laughs> yeah. You know, our perspective of God destroying things but I certainly think that comes down to the heart of the root of my theological way that I view the world and life and the existence of God, how God functions within and through and around me. Yeah. 
Well, and that transactional piece also brings in this element of what we think God owes us. Mm. You know, if I'm good enough, then God owes me a good, healthy life. If I serve him enough, if I pray enough, if I, if I, if I, there's all these things, or even, well, God said this in scripture, he promised me this, so he owes me this, Mm -hmm. this idea that the God of the universe owes us something. Then we find ourselves in these moments where... You were trying to preach a Sunday series on prayer. You were trying to encourage people to pray. You were trying to live your life as best you could. And God didn't protect you from this bacteria, right? And it causes you to have to step back and say, okay, if you had been in a place where you thought it was transactional, if you had been in a place where you thought God owed you, that would have forced you to step back and rethink things. There's something about my understanding of God, of myself, of the world that I'm seeing now isn't aligning. So either there's something wrong with God or there's something wrong with my understanding. So how can I process this? And I feel like we have these milestones in our lives, right? These moments in our lives when you had the miscarriage, that was a significant moment that pushed you to press into loss and grief and fear and pain in a deeper way than you ever had before. How did this milestone in your life impact your understanding of God, yourself, your ministry, your engagement with others? I think it only solidified some of the core or foundational ways that I understand God, my relationship with God, and also the function of the church in our lives. And I kind of alluded to this earlier that, you know, the pandemic has really heightened people's loose connection with the local church, because for some many people, our connection to the church is transactional, right? You give me the best programs you put on the worship I want. I'm going to get there. I'm going to tip you, call it a tithe, and then I'm going to leave and go do my own thing during the week. For me, the church in its basic and most fundamental form is an authentic community that we live our lives with. And I don't think we can avoid that, you know, especially when you read the book of Acts and see how they interwove their lives together. And they were there in times of celebration and times of need, responding to each other and being with each other. It never ceases to amaze me because, you know, all ministers have had these interactions with church people. And you're like, uh, why am I doing this? (laughs) Like, this is the worst experience. Why would anybody put up with this, you know? It's not for the pay. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's not for the perks, you know, so why am I here? But then you have this moment like I had this summer in which you're reminded that I am just another sojourner in this great movement of faith. And I need others just as much as they might need me. And just because I'm theologically trained, just because I have these years of experience, just because I preach just because I organize and provide pastoral care doesn't mean I don't need it myself. And then to experience that, especially from my wife, who is just an abundant well of compassion, to see so vividly the character of God within somebody who you've committed your life to, but it's in those critical moments like this where they care for you and nurture you and it just kind of reshapes and continues to add layers to the complexity in your understanding of God and how that affects your daily life. So I would never wish it upon anybody. Mm. And certainly, as I said earlier, my experience is nothing compared to people who are experiencing just horrible diagnosis right now. But something about the potential of losing your vision really does change the way you look at life, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, pun intended. I think I gained a deeper appreciation of the things that I can see. 
And I do see every single day, Mm. you know, give you a a stupid example, long distance runner. And sometimes I will, because I'm running for so long, I just get caught up in whatever I'm listening to on my audio book that just don't pay attention to what's around me in a deep sense. And I found myself afterwards taking in the beauty of what I was seeing around me, the smallest of details of things that seeing around me. I think those are just some of the basic things that bubble up after that experience. Yeah. Yeah, I really love that. It's this idea of the shift internally of how we see, understand, and engage with the world. And then there is also this broader communal piece because you brought up a verse earlier that I'm able to comfort with the comfort that I've received. Here you are now. You know, I don't know your full story, but it sounds like this was the heftiest health thing that you've had to navigate, the heftiest medical thing that you personally had to navigate. And what's interesting is you will run into people that are going through hefty medical things that may not be the same exact diagnosis, but are on a same level. And you'll be able to engage with them, talk with them, pray with them in a much different way, having experienced what you've experienced than you ever could with your theological training on its own, from your own understanding, from your own assumptions of what that must be like. It's kind of like when you're in the midst of a hard situation. The miscarriage is, I think, a great example. We experienced two miscarriages ourselves. And one of the hardest things was well-meaning people and platitudes because it's like (laughs) your words aren't helping. And I know, I know you mean well, and I know that your words make sense to you. But what you're saying to me right now, you don't understand what I'm going through. And you don't understand that you're making it worse right now. Right. And as a pastor, now you're going to be able to comfort in a very different way. Because you know what it's like to have severe loss and shift of your life right before you severe inability to control the outcomes to have to change your life right now to wake up every single hour to put drops in your eye and you're not getting sleep. And when you encounter someone who has to go through some medical treatment or who isn't getting rest, you'll look at them and be like, I know, I get it. Sometimes you won't even have to say anything. They'll just know that you know. And so tell me about that. When you're thinking of your ministry going forward, how does this change your ministry? Yes, to a certain extent, I think there's the personal experience level with that and being able to connect to what people are experiencing as you're ministering to them. But I think it's reversed, too. I think it's people knowing what you have experienced. They believe you when you say, I can't imagine what you're going through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And people are experiencing tragedy. The best thing to do is to just shut up. <laughs> and be present in people's lives. I promise that clever saying you think is going to make them feel better is not, and they really don't need to hear it. Just just be present in people's lives. The ministry of presence without necessarily having to speak words is very impactful. I know this sounds silly, but to allude to what I was talking about earlier, it kind of reminds me of the scene from the Harry Potter series, which Harry sees these creatures, these Thestrals for the first time. They've always been there. Mm. He just never saw them. And no one else around him saw them except Luna Lovegood. She is the one who expresses to him why Harry and no one else can see them. It's because he's experienced tragedy and death. He's actually witnessed it. And that changed his perspective and opened his eyes to new reality. And so I think it helps me more effectively minister to others, but it also helps others be more receptive to me ministering to them because, you know, oftentimes pastors preaching on faith and they've never had to experience great feats of faith or they've never had experienced tragedy or setback or heartache or 
preaching on miracles and they maybe never actually experienced one, you know? And so I think it adds to the complexity of how I'm able to minister to others because I've experienced that. Now, don't misunderstand that mindset. That's not like people right now that are like, well, I'm just going to get the virus so that I, you know, I've already got it and it's done. It's off my back. Don't go out and seek these things in your life as if it's going to bring them, but know that that experience does add so much to who you are, whatever your vocational experience is. Yeah. It's not just for me, but I think in how people connect to me and how I'm able to connect to them. Yeah. And what's beautiful is that hits on something that we were saying earlier is that we have our understanding of reality. And there comes a point where we realize that our understanding is very small and limited or completely wrong. We have this lifetime of walking with God where little by little, he's tossing some things out to give us a broader understanding of who he is, because I mean, he's beyond our understanding. We could not grasp him. We can't even grasp creation. We can't grasp the universe. We know it's big. But if I try to think about that size, that scope, my brain hurts because it's beyond my comprehension. You know, I love that analogy because Ron and the others are going through life thinking, man, look at these magical carts moving by themselves. (laughs) But when we experience something and suddenly we see reality in a fuller, deeper, more robust way. We no longer just chalk stuff up to coincidence. We no longer chalk it up to just this cool thing. But we could see things fully, even if it's hard, even if it's hard seeing what we see. And this is what's beautiful about the story you brought up with Jesus, is that if there is anyone that deserved a nice, comfortable, healthy life, it would be Jesus. But Jesus's friend died. And Jesus knew that it would bring sorrow to those around him. And he didn't come immediately. Like he had the power to say from a distance, oh, let them know that by the time you get back, he's already going to be healed. He's done that before. There's this understanding that Jesus was willing to experience hardship because he knew that that was a part of life. That was a part of the experience of being human. But also that revealed more of the depths because a life avoiding all those things is a life very limited. God lost his son, right? Like God so loved the world that he gave his only son. There is a pain in that. Man, I just love that idea that the more that we allow ourselves, not pursue it, like you said, but willingly trust God as he allows these things in our lives, you know, we begin to see life more fully. We begin to see a little more and more and more and more of this full life that Jesus talked about. And that's a beautiful thing. There's so much more we could talk about. But as we wrap up, I have two questions. So the first one, very simple, straightforward. If anyone wanted to learn more about your podcast, your church, you, what's the best way to get to that good information? Yeah, so I host the CBF Podcast Conversation. It's a weekly podcast. We're interviewing authors and theologians and practitioners and all different kinds of people and just creating what we think are conversations that matter. You can go to the website and go to cbf.net backslash podcast, or you can get the podcast on pretty much any platform that exists. And then, of course, I pastor University Baptist Church in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. If you want to learn more about some of the cool work we do here, it's uh, ubc-br.org. Nice. And the last question is also simple. Is there anything else on your heart that you want to share before we go? Oh, wow. We'd be here a lot longer than (laughs) Hey, (laughs) we would need to be for that. (laughs) You share what you need to share, Andy. No, it's been good to talk with you and thank you for inviting me on and having this conversation. It's uh, humbling to be asked to talk about anything, let alone personal experience we had. And so grateful for what you're doing. You will walk, you will run, and take-
Our reflection on Jesus towards the end of the conversation really sat with me. The reality is Jesus could have protected a lot of people from suffering and hardship. In the story of Lazarus dying, Jesus had demonstrated that he had the power to say from afar, that person is healed, go home. But he chose not to do that. He chose not to heal Lazarus from afar. He chose not to travel to Lazarus immediately. He chose something different. He chose to allow Lazarus' sisters and friends and other family to experience suffering and hardship. And that's not the only time that Jesus allowed suffering and hardship. What Jesus knew and what we are learning now is that there is a purpose for the suffering and the hardship. That's why we have verses like James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Or Romans 5, verses 3 through 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. There is a purpose to suffering and hardship. There is a restoration that can happen through suffering and hardship that we couldn't find anywhere else. But this is a hard tension, because as Andy mentioned, this doesn't mean that we should pursue hardship and suffering does not mean that we should cause suffering and hardship. But what it does mean is that we should trust God and his understanding and his will and his ways and be willing when he doesn't remove a situation from our lives to keep on walking towards him, believing that he actually does love us and he actually is after abundantly more than we could ask or imagine. So we simultaneously must not pursue hardship and suffering and yet be willing to endure it when invited to do so. And the hardest part is in the midst, we might not have clarity of mind. I know that's been true for me. I can look back and see the moments of suffering and hardship that God grew me through, but in the moment, I was struggling. In the moment, I was trying to get away. In the moment, I did not have this clarity of spiritual maturity to say, ha this is producing steadfastness. But, By the grace of God, what I was able to do is to keep stepping. So let's really name this tension here. What I'm not inviting you to is to be a theologian in every one of those moments and to be able to consistently say, haha, I'm in hardship, therefore God is at work. But what I am inviting us into is to cultivate a practice of stepping towards God so that when those moments happen, when those hardships hit and our minds are muddled, we have some muscle memory of what it looks like to step, even if it's a small step. Suffering and hardship will come. And sometimes God does remove that. But in the many times that he doesn't, he may be trying to produce something like steadfastness, endurance, character, or hope. He may be trying to reveal something in us that we didn't want to see or couldn't have seen if we tried. He may be doing something for someone else and inviting us into that process. God is never lazy or oblivious. And so if the suffering or hardship remains, God remains too and has a purpose. So let us work on cultivating that practice of stepping towards God now, where we are, so that in those moments, we can keep on stepping 
whether we fully realize we are or not, and we can ask in the midst of the darkness, where did you see God? Have you ever wanted to read Revelation but haven't known where to start? Or have you been afraid to read Revelation because of all the ways you've seen it misused? Or maybe you haven't even wanted to touch Revelation but feel like maybe you should since it's part of the Bible? Well, if you're in any of these positions or any other ones, I've got a resource for you. It's called A Journey Through Revelation for the Person Who Doesn't Want to Read Revelation. And here's the thing. The hope for this resource is that it makes the exploration of who God is and what revelation can mean for you accessible, whatever you believe. And this will not be your normal revelation study. It's not going to dive into the historic representations of the imagery or expertly decipher the prophecies. The goal of this is not to tell you what revelation means. It's to explore what it can mean for you. Now, this thing is available for you right now in a few forms. One, you could go to www.wheredidyouseegod.com revelation, and you can find a PDF for free, which you can read on your phone, on your device, or print out. But if you like something that's a little nicer looking, it is also available through Amazon on Kindle and in paperback form. And I prefer paperback, whether you print it or you get the one on Amazon, because this gives you a place to write some things out because you're going to want a place to write things out. Because I really do believe that God wants to speak to you through Revelation, whatever you feel about Revelation, whatever your experience and whatever you think about God. So if you're interested, get it for free, get it for a very, very, very low price. This is not about making money, but about us together exploring how we can see God in the midst of such a difficult and controversial book. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Where Did You See God podcast. And I would love for your stories to be a part of it as well. So there are a number of ways that you can do that. You can check out our Facebook page at Where Did You See God podcast. You can go to anchor.fm slash Where Did You See God, where you can leave a brief voice message at 804-372-3836. I would love to hear your stories. And if the stories you've heard have encouraged you, uh, think of someone else who could be encouraged as well and share it with them. The music you've been listening to is You'll Walk, You'll Run by Urban Doxology. They are a solid group and you will love listening to the rest of the music. So check them out. And as always, as you go through your day, ask yourself, where did you see God?